I'm very much enjoying hanging out with you on this Tuesday night, as well as my co-host for Tuesday in Dilruk Jaya Singer. If you have just turned the radio on and gone, what the hell? Yeah. How come he's he's uh, what has he done? You've uh, you've stepped up a grade. Yes, yes, from, from guest from that guest. pops in once every three months or so. Yeah, to now sitting in the co-host chair. That's exactly right. And How is my new hat wearing? I'm as a loving co-host? it. Yes, okay, it's good. Really good. Good fit. Feedback is as a stand-up comedian, I get immediate feedback normally. That's so it's hard true. to tell in this job. Going, am I doing well or not? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Uh, so if you think he is doing well, you can text now on zero four three seven. I am very needy. Seven seven four <laughs> seven seven four. It doesn't matter what I think; it's what you think. <laughs> In the end. Hey, tonight on Ritz and Cures, we're going to hear about a legal first, which is a pro bono patient legal clinic. And Dill now knows what pro bono means. Mm. Um, Established at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne four years ago, set up in conjunction with the law firm Morris Blackburn to help patients resolve their legal problems. And the aim is not just to resolve their legal issues, but also to help with their recovery from illness by relieving the stress and anxiety caused by personal legal problems. It was launched by the former High Court Justice Michael Kirby and remarkably has just seen its 1,000th client. It's awesome, isn't it? It's fantastic. Mm. So tonight we'll hear from uh, lawyers who have been at the coalface for all of that time to find out how it works. But first up, we're talking, taking on a rather ethical challenge from the news this week and we're talking about whether or not smoking should be banned from movies and on television. And joining us, as they often do, although not so much with Steve, um, for Ritz and Cures, uh, Melbourne lawyer Bill O'Shea. Hello, Bill. Hi, Lindy. Nice Hi, Dora. Hello. And, uh, yeah, he's back. He is a psychiatrist, and his name is Professor Steve Ellen. Hello. G'day, Lindy. How are you? I'm fine. I, did I sound, I sound a bit sort of... Oh. Well, and you know what? I, in fairness, two of the weeks I was away was Commonwealth Games. That's true. And I wasn't here either. I was on. <laughs> what, what, what event were you in again? Remind me. I was in the Bali Marathon. No, there was I no was marathon. A, I was in the Bali relaxing on a lounge chair. I thought it was you are in pocket billiards. That's not... That's what a, is pocket billiards? Oh, don't ask. I mean, I know what it is, so let's move on. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, that's what again. my job is there, to feel that. Thank you, Delroy. Thanks, Dora. Thanks for intervening and being the ABC censor for the evening. <laughs> yeah, that's a big call. If people have seen me perform live, yeah. you're going, well, he's changed. <laughs> he's uh, t- one hour on ABC and he's already... We'll just train you on the dump button early on, I think. <laughs> I love the fact that you've just got in really early there, Bill, with something that should never have gone to air. I literally would be going for two minutes. <sighs> should smoking be banned from movies and on television? So where, where has this come from, Steve? Well, it's come from an article that uh, is floating around in various bits and pieces because there's a group in the UK who um, took offence and it sort of picked up around the world. A group called ASH, it stands for the Anti-Smoking Something or Other. It's an anti-smoking lobby. They took offence um, at a couple of things, in particular some reality TV shows where smoking was just all over these shows. And uh, their implication being that this is a form of, you know, of... Uh, advertising, and uh, it shouldn't be allowed. And they also pointed out that there's a similar problem in movies, and they um, presented some data that about 80-odd percent of uh, Oscar-nominated movies this year had smokers as key characters, Absolutely. whereas in previous years it had been a bit lower. Mm. And so they, they were raising this as an issue. And it's sort of, it's, so it's become, in a sense, one of the latest fronts, and there are many, in the fight on tobacco. I am so glad this has come up. Just probably four or five years ago, I just was watching quite a few things, and I—I I don't know what it was. Was the catalyst that made me think I'm going to watch from now on just how many characters 
in movies and on television smoke cigarettes. Mm. And it's the only place they don't do it is, you know, the the science fiction things, and even sometimes like a dystopian future, they have mm, some yeah. form of it. But, and but play, play school, they don't smoke on play school. As far, mm. as far as I'm aware, I haven't watched play school for a while, but I wouldn't put it past them. Big Ted behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, I've, shh, I've heard that. Mm. I've told you, you're getting secrets. And yes, he's got a yes, lot of, I did a little thing on. He's play got stains on his paws. <laughs> I don't know whether you've noticed. It looks to me it could be nicotine stains. It's yellow. It's anyway. hard to tell. Yeah. It's hard yeah. to tell with the yellow. But so I started watching it because I was seeing more and more people who there was no need for them to smoke. You know, sometimes smoking mm. it, it can mm. it can show like a shady character or it can be. But there's a variety of reasons. There's for a classic is Winston it. Churchill recently in um, Darkest Hour. Now you can't really not present him as a cigar smoker. He was famous for it. Absolutely. Right. But the vast majority of the um, depictions. It's actually incidental, and it does raise the question of, is this being influenced by sponsorship? Yeah. It, ha- it has to be. I, I, so just, much of it. I've just seen I, Tonya, and I don't know whether you've seen it, but no. it's full of endless smoking. Yeah. But And particularly from her mother, from the lead character's mother, who yes. never stops smoking cigars. But the, the real issue I'm concerned about is product placement, because it's not just smoking, it's the name on the packet. As well, isn't it? That's part yeah. Well, this of the deal. was one of the problems with this show, Love Island, and I haven't checked that out. I've been—it's all relatively recent, so I haven't checked. I haven't taken notice it's not about on your Aussie ones. List to watch at home, Love I Island. Want, I want to look it up now. I yeah. like the sound of it, Love Island. I want to go there. Obviously, <laughs> I went well, to Bali. And that, <laughs> that didn't turn out to be Love Island. Um, so, uh, but in that particular show, apparently there was one particular brand of was cigarettes. It Lucky Strike or something. Yeah, like Lucky that? Strike um, were you know throughout it, and it turned out the contestants were being given unlimited supply of cigarettes right. if they wanted them. They weren't being forced on them, obviously, but if they wanted them, they were all offered cigarettes every day. Um, and I've started noticing, like, I saw some alcohol placement in a show I've been watching on TV lately, and in it, they all drink um, scotch, and they use the same brand every time, yep. and it's a square bottle, and every time, the label's facing the Absolutely. front, which should be a one in four chance. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and so I've started, no, you know, obviously we've seen it in movies for a long time, especially action movies, you know, and it's it's almost considered part of the fun. You know, who's got it? Coca-Cola or Pepsi Max? Yes. Who got the movie? Which car is James Bond driving? That yeah. sort of stuff. But the, the smoking's more insidious, of course, because um, oh, obviously it kills people. Yeah, obviously uh, it does kill people. And is there evidence to show it leads to more people taking up smoking? See, that's interesting. I wonder if there is. Well, yeah, the ASH, the smoking, the anti-smoking group, um, say there is evidence. They say there's... Um, and look, there's certainly strong evidence that the more you put smoking in front of people, especially young people, the more they'll smoke. That's why we've banned advertising. That's why we've got plain packaging cigarettes, etc., etc. So there's strong evidence for that. Now, whether that extends to movies is a little bit more debatable. ASH say there is good evidence and they're happy with it. The pro-smoking groups, which are, of course, are yep. funded by smoking um, companies, now, say the evidence isn't strong enough to justify a change. Is it, now, going back to I, Tonya, I saw that film and I know exactly what you're talking about, the mother character who is continuously chain-smoking. Is it fair to say that it's, it's a villainous character? It doesn't necessarily gra- glamorise what she's doing in that yep. instance. Plus, also towards, not really a spoiler, we see that she's riddled with illnesses mm. by the end, which mm. could be off the back of the excessive yep. smoking. So yep. it's almost like an anti-cigarette campaign for me, if I, the way I view, uh, would view that character's uh, approach to smoking. She, yeah, she looks like one of the anti-cancer ads at the right. end. 
Yes. From the, her health. So Correct. Well, on- I think that's quite unusual because the, often the people who are smoking in films yeah. are the cool people, yeah. are the characters that we are meant to admire, uh, yeah. and mm. you know who who are, but but in a way that you kind of that they're, they're a bit tough. They're the a cool bit, guy. The cool guy. Like Mad well, Men, you know, there's a lot of exactly. excessive drinking and smoking in that. And yeah. I think that's a lot of the. I, I think one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of movies now and TV series made uh, around the the revisiting the sixties and the seventies yeah. is because it, <laughs> this is I'm drawing a long bow here, but yeah. stay with me. I think it gives opportunities for smoking and smoking placement more so than in the 21st century, where there's just the, the, the amount of smoking has dropped, not so much in, in European countries, but certainly in the UK and in the US and in Australia, the numbers have significantly dropped um, through a lot of hard work done by a lot of people. Uh, but it, And I think to de, you know, depict the modern day, it's kind of harder to get away with it, whereas, you know, as you say, everyone was smoking and, and it was yeah. all sort of seen as cool in the 60s and 70s. So, hey, let's put lots of movies together that harken back to that era. Now, that's, you, I know that's, that's, a, real, that's a long bow. Jake, do you want to show your tinfoil hat while you're saying <laughs> this right. as well? Beep, beep, but you can't, you can't really criticise Mad Men for showing a lot of smoking and drinking and... In the advertising and indeed, industry in um, the 60s. Mucking around in the... Playing mums and dads in the office because that's what went on in the yes. 50s. Right. And it's true to life. But it's not necessarily true to life in a modern film no. now. It's just gratuitous. It well, is highly gratuitous. 15% now people smoke in Australia and it is higher in a lot of other countries. It gets as high as 60% in a few places like Indonesia, I think. But yeah. mostly it's... You know, and we've gone down from around about 30%, 30-odd years ago, to 2000, we were at about 25%, now 15% on the back of all these campaigns. Well, then, is it more... Uh, are we saying that if, if 20 cents, 15 or 25% or whatever the population that does smoke, if you're just ignoring it altogether, aren't you not giving a correct representation of reality right now? This is where I... See, this is... I, I if, take your point because this is where I have a bit of a problem too. I'm really... Um, confused over this issue because on the one hand my politics is a little bit anti-regulation I like regulation mm. up to a point but I'm very you know I'm very tory about nanny statism I'm very tory about it and on the one hand I say it's normal representation if 15% of people smoke of course if you have 10 people in a movie you're always going to have one or two characters you're always going to have yeah. but if you have 10 people in a movie the chances are nine of them are smoking that's the right. problem yet on the other hand I work as a psychiatrist in a cancer hospital and I see people dying from lung cancer and I know that all these campaigns save lives. So I'm, I'm really caught up. I want to regulate as much as possible within reason of still giving individuals choice. And if it's legal... So I'm all for education, but I don't like the idea of right. trying to Banning force things. It. I know. So I'm, I, I have problems with it, I must admit. So maybe, Steve, you can answer this for me. Is it too simplistic to then put the put the responsibility back on parents. If you want to go to kids, saying kids learning from, you know, watching movies, watching things like Mad Men or whatever, is it too simplistic to then go, well, it should be the parents' job to say, hey, I know you're seeing this is happening right now. The same way you wouldn't glamorize, you know, a drug addiction or whatever, that you can say smoking is in that same category. I, I, I don't think it's simplistic. I think it's reasonable. The problem is this. In order to make a real impact on public health, things you have to do multiple measures at once no single measure ever works by itself and so if you think about what we've done for smoking i was trying to think about this just when we were sitting outside and i jotted down everything i could think of we started with the public health education campaign in the 80s with quit 
We did a whole lot of taxing. Now cigarettes that cost about two cents to make cost a dollar to buy. Right. Um, we, then we banned advertising. Then we started banning smoking, first in restaurants, then in bars, then in public places. Then we went to plain, plain packaging. And Australia's considered the world leader. We're the only one who's had such a massive decrease. Few countries are close, but the rest of the world looks to us for our to, to for the success of our smoking campaign. And has have lung and the cancer. education is sorry, bit, sorry, I was just going to say the education buys into um, empowering parents, but you need the rest as well. So have the lung cancer numbers gone down accordingly? You know what? I tried to chase it up before I got... Yes, they have. Um, they, they fall. I couldn't get exact numbers. Of course, they fall about 20 years later. And it's not just lung, yeah. mm-hmm. and, point but out. Yeah, um, but I've read a couple of articles in the last five years saying that the early signs of all of our benefits are starting to flow through because, of course, it takes 20 years to develop lung cancer, so, of course, it takes 20 years to see significant impacts. Yeah. But... Um, but yes, is the, the short answer is yes, but I haven't got the exact numbers. And I want to come to you, Bill, from a legal perspective. If the decision was made that Hollywood decides, and they're not going to because it would cost them billions of dollars in sponsorship and, and money from product placement, but if they decide that, that characters can no longer smoke, in we, we, we can't do it, this is a legal um, product, have they got a legal leg to stand on? They can do what they like if they're making a movie. They're not obliged to put cigarettes in. And if they make a rule that um, gratuitous smoking is not going to be part of, let's say, uh, any Picador movie, Mm -hmm. you know, the the producers of that uh, 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 production house decide uh, a gratuitous smoking won't form part of their movies, I think they're entitled to do that. It's not discrimination. Um, it might not necessarily be in character on occasions, that's all. I think you have to reserve the in character. So someone under tension who who you would expect if they were a smoker to want to smoke to demonstrate the tension they're under, fine. Yeah, yeah. But look, I went to see Bernadette Robinson in London, who's an Australian singer, and she was on at the Arts Centre. And, and, I, and I discovered that she was going to be on it in London when I was there, and I went and saw her for the second time. And in her act, she lights a cigarette, <clears throat> and there's no reason for lighting the cigarette at all. Except the it's fact not that she relevant. might be addicted. No, she, she oh, it's barely like smoked it. She had about two puffs and put it out. No. And it looks really crass. You know, it weird. looks totally out of place to do it, apart from filling Just a waste of a good diary. the front four <laughs> rows with smoke. But, you know, why? Why, why do it? Yeah, I don't know why. Affected. I don't know why it was necessary. It's a wonderful act without the cigarette. The issue, I suppose, is a, you don't want to interfere with the artistic integrity. As you said, if it's part of that particular era, that yep. uh, you don't want to erase that as well. But is the answer then about sort of regulating... Where the funding, whether they're getting funding for showing that. Yeah. Also, different countries have regulations that extend not only to straight out ads, but to content. Like Australia's rules, we had some amendment to our Tobacco Advertising Act in 2012 that tightened up some of this. I was working at a hospital in India a couple of years ago and I was watching TV at night Mm. and every time someone came on smoking... Um, a little sign came up, yep. like a subtitle at the bottom, wow. saying, just like on our cigarette packets, yep. saying, you know, the smoking, <laughs> smoking is dangerous. Smoking is dangerous. Harmful to your health. It might wow. have just been one region of India, I don't know. But, no, um, I, in fact, it was one of the points I was going to bring up because I visited my brother who lives in Mumbai and all TV shows, including, say, something like Friends, where you have a character like Chandler who it is identified as being a bad habit and they're trying to stop him from smoking. Even in that context, as soon as he lights up, the, 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 the banner goes down saying, smoking is harmful to your health. Interesting. Wow, interesting. I took a photo of it. I tried to find it just before. Okay, it's somewhere on my phone amongst a thousand other photos. Yeah. Well, it's, well, it's amazing. Well, maybe Film Victoria or the Australian Film Commission could say, if we're going to commission movies, we don't want gratuitous smoking. What's wrong with that? I yeah. mean, 
It's, we're talking about gratuitous smoking? Yeah, gratuitous. Yeah. Some, and and we don't want product placement of cigarettes either. We don't want the brand to be displayed. Is there any, is there any examples in the past of things that were considered, uh, you know, gratuitous that we now don't act? I mean, maybe nudity is one that well, comes violence, into play. I mean, there's always self-censorship of those things anyway. The extent yeah, to which right. you show violence, um, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's done in all sorts of areas we don't even know about. So, you know, I think product placement's quite sinister. It's if interesting. It's I, was, I had a conversation, and I'm going to name drop significantly here, but I'm loving the fact I can. I'll get ready to pack a pick it I, up. I had a conversation off air after interviewing her with Emily Blunt, the oh, actress. Wow. Uh, this is quite a few years ago, and she was in Australia promoting a film that she'd done um, before she became a massive star, but she was a biggish star then. We talked because her character in the film that she was in was was a was a heavy smoker, and, and I I sort of was at the time I just started noticing this stuff. Mm. And I, I wanted to know how actors felt mm. about it. I wish I was kind of kicking myself I didn't ask the question in the interview. Do you have a but, number still? But how they, how they felt. Just give her a quick bell. Quick call. By the way, Emily, we're just touching on this <laughs> if you'd like to mention your thoughts. Was something along the lines of a lot of actors don't actually smoke themselves. Yeah. And they have to smoke those sort of mm. the they say the fake, the, the fake herbal yeah, things one. that they as you said even though those are not particularly great for you mm. and when you find out that your character is a smoker and she said and yeah right there's so many of us now are particularly women particularly mm. women which is she said, I think it was like a we're meant to, it's a sign of toughness or something which is you know crazy from her perspective and mine um, but she said we we just go oh of course they're a smoker so I'm going to be I'm going to be sitting with this thing in my hands for pretty much every scene that I mm-hmm. have to do. So even back then, I'm, that's probably mm. eight, nine years ago now. Mm. Steve, is there a thing with um, when you see someone smoking a cigarette on in a movie, there's that element of danger and flying in the face of danger that we subconsciously, we love that. We love to see a stunt. We, you know, we love to see a car fly through the sky. The same way there's a bit of some kind of attraction to the idea of this person knows smoking is bad, but I'm going to still have a puff. I and agree. A- it's, it's one of the real problems we face from education perspective. You know, I was listening to a guy being interviewed just recently about his uh, methamphetamine addiction, and he talked about how when he was young and all the anti-smoking and anti-marijuana and all these other messages, that then they tried a lot of these mild things and they didn't find they were nearly as dangerous as the um, authority figures said. And so they lost all faith in authority figures and that led to, you know, not trusting them and all sorts of things. So the fact that a lot of these drugs are, things like cigarettes are seen as being cool, it makes it incredibly hard for us to educate against it because inevitably educators are not cool. No, they're not. And so we have to use images like public people who are cool, who don't smoke, to try and strengthen our message. Um, So it's a... it's, it's difficult. It's not easy to get the messages out there. Yeah, it's not easy. A final text to wrap this conversation up or the part, this part of Ritz and Cures. It says, I think we've come a long way. Finian's Rainbow, back in 1969, starring Fred Astaire, uh, was a musical about the development of menthol cigarettes. Mm. So at least we've stepped a bit further what is away menthol? from that. Anyway, is it some sort of chemical? You know, because when I was young, growing like up, flavoring. you know, my, my parents, if they had a cold, they changed to menthol cigarettes because they... <laughs> Oh, it's <laughs> true. And it was just an advertising campaign back then. And, but yeah, subsequently, yeah. of course. It's completely for anyone out there who doubts it is, thinks that's true, it ain't. Well, I've got this slide at home that I always show when I'm talking to doctors, and it's 
Doctors smoke camels. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have you seen that I slide? Have. Oh, the yeah. doctor in the white no. coat. It is a topic for a different night, I'm sure. Oh, but was... also, what it is? What is it that we're going through right now? That in 20 years' time, we'll be laughing at yeah. what we are doing as normal. Well, it's like the classic scene out of one of the the Woody Allen film where he wakes up in the future and they give him a cream bun and a cigarette because <laughs> they found out that they're actually really great for you. You know, it's ah, <laughs> oh, dear Woody, crazy beast. Um, it's uh, Roots and Cures. My name is Lindy Burns, together with Dilruk Jai Singh, and my co-host tonight, Bill O'Shea and Steve Allen, are here as per usual. And in a moment, we're talking to a couple of people who um, have set up shop, kind of, in the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. Help is a legal clinic there, a pro bono patient legal clinic. It's been going for some four years. What do they do and how many people have they helped? And I'm here hosting. And co-hosting is my co-host for the whole show tonight mm. in comedian Delrock Jai Singer. And we're, of course, as usual, joined by Melbourne lawyer Bill O'Shea and by psychiatrist Professor Steve Allen. And we have two special guests before us. So, yeah, there's a thousand of us in the studio and we're loving that that's the case. Because I mentioned just um, a few minutes ago that tonight we're talking to you about a legal first. It's a pro bono patient legal clinic established four years ago at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne in conjunction with the law firm Morris Blackburn. And it's to help patients resolve their legal problems. And the aim is not just to resolve the legal issues, but also to help with their recovery from illness. How do they do that? By relieving the stress and the anxiety caused by the personal legal problems, which can sometimes be worse when you are unwell. It's called the HELP Legal Clinic. That's capital H, little e, capital L, capital P. And it was launched by the former High Court Justice Michael Kirby. And tonight, sitting opposite me, are our special guests in Morris Blackburn, Principal Kate Booth and Senior Associate Emily Hart, who've been running the clinic and can tell us how it works. Ladies, welcome to Ritz and Cures. Lovely to see you again. Thanks, Thanks for coming for in. Us. Thank you for having us. I want to start at the, at the beginning and what it was like, Kate, to, to, put, to know you were putting this into practice and what the major challenge you saw as as the thing you would face, particularly first up? Was it about getting people to come and to take make use of what was being offered, getting the information out there perhaps, being able to help in the best way possible? What What was the first big challenge four years ago? Well, I suppose the first challenge was understanding what it was that was trying to be achieved and then getting collaboration between a law firm, um, a hospital and uh, Monash University, uh, the Michael Kirby Centre. So collaboration between um, different parties that had never come together before. So whose idea was it in the first place? Uh, Well, definitely the uh, researchers at the Michael Kirby Centre approached approached, uh, approached me a long time ago now, um, late 2012. Were there any previous sort of... uh this done in other countries that you guys sort of looked at and seen how they approached it and modelled yourselves against that? Oh, there have definitely been um, help legal partnerships uh, um, in the USA and the UK, and I think that's where the researchers at right. the Michael Kirby Centre developed the idea. And what was the the major thing you were trying to do? What problem did you see happening within the hospital system or in that environment that you saw that there was some way that, that the firm could help? Well, the principle that was put to us was that 
people who are um, very unwell often have lots of legal problems and there's a great unmet need out there to get legal help for people who perhaps can't afford it. Legal aid is very, very restricted in Victoria now and so the thinking is to develop a holistic approach to patients. But also at the hospital, uh, Kate, as well. I mean, legal aid, even if you got it, wouldn't turn up at the bedside. Absolutely, Bill. Our whole, the provision of our whole service is usually at the bedside. Occasionally they'll come down, the patients, but usually it's at bedside. Steve? You know, traditionally, my mob, the doctors, are a little bit toey about lawyers and, you know, they sometimes you know, even call you guys ambulance chasers mm-hmm. at times. Did you get much resistance from the, um, you know, the doctors and any other clinicians at the hospital? Um, initially, there were uh, was some resistance, but there was also great champions of um, of this concept um, who could see the unmet need, um, and of course, um, counsel at the time uh, at the hospital could see the the great need for legal advice. So uh, legal people at the hospital were often being called down to bedside to help patients who were in uh, serious um, need of help, maybe criminal or family law or an urgent will or or that sort of thing that was distracting counsel from the running of the hospital as well. Steve, I want to just bring you back in to, to, I guess, clarify the role that stress can play in inhibiting a healing process because that's one of the things that we're trying to offset here. Well, you know, the sorts of problems that lawyers can help with are massive in patients' recoveries. When people first get diagnosed, especially with a major illness, there are so many legal issues, issues around housing, issues around work and getting time off work, how they're going to keep up with all of the uh, responsibilities that, that they have and being sick is super expensive. So legal issues crop up all the time and, stre- and of course, they add enormously to the stress of being sick and, of, and as we all know, stress decrease you know can decrease your immune function it can and not only through biological mechanisms stress also makes you less likely to comply with your treatment you're less likely to remember to take your tablets you're less likely to turn up to appointments so it's insidious in multiple ways so you know something like this from my perspective it's just gold because we can't get these problems met for patients as inpatients normally meaning when they're in hospital and in the first month or so of their illness it's just so hard to meet these needs and Kate, is the, is the clinic manned twenty four seven, or is it not? No, it's um, two days a week, Tuesday and Thursdays. We see patients um, or their family members on those days. Okay, we Am could I- be there full time, but you know, there's um, uh, a, we we feel two days is an appropriate. Um, well, you could be quite overwhelmed. We could be quite overwhelmed. Quite overwhelmed. So it's, yeah. it's what we see as the amount of time we can give. Emily, I want you to talk a bit about your experience there. You've sure. been there since for the four years. That's right, yeah, since day one. So do you go, are you, are you there? I'm trying to work out how the staffing goes. So are you there both Tuesday and Thursday, or is there a, a Tuesday team and a Thursday team? Well, initially for the first probably year and a half, I was there both days, um, and that was obviously quite a lot of people to see and quite a lot of work to so do. So just you by yourself? Yeah, and right. Kate obviously um, assisting as well, um, supervising that clinic as we were developing it. Um, we've now got 10 lawyers who are trained up to operate the clinic um, and at any time there's probably about six who are actively involved in running it. So we all take turns running clinic days. Um, we've got a pretty sophisticated handover system and you know policies and procedures that we follow. 
so the rest of the days you're obviously going back to your regular uh, yeah work, our day jobs which is what we me and lindy were talking about before about pro bono work we hear it a lot in terms of legal firms doing it is that a requirement that uh, every law firm has to have a certain quarter of pro bono work or is it more it's a great question i mean it depends so i think for certain firms if they're doing government work there may be a requirement yeah there is there's for doing government work if you're on the government panel the attorney requires firms on that panel to do a certain amount of pro bono work. But uh, I'm not sure. Is Morris Blackburn on the government panel? Wouldn't be, no. would it? No. no. So you're really doing it just out of the goodness of your hearts, really, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. And no look, pun intended, Emily. <laughs> look, what, one of the amazing things I think I found as a lawyer coming into the industry is how much time people give in addition to their day-to-day job, how much work people do. People volunteer, people do all kinds of stuff. So it it sort of gets built into the way we work as an industry. Could you just tell us an example? Because I remember way back that one of the first cases you had was a woman with a a child she was concerned about with a and didn't want her partner to look out and was dying and didn't want that. Could sure. you just give the listeners some inkling about what that was about, one of your yeah, earliest absolutely. cases? And, and, in fact, that, that was, in fact, one of our, I think it was our very first patient, but we've seen many people in the same situation. So we'll often see somebody who um, comes into the hospital because they've been diagnosed with perhaps a terminal illness um, and they're the sole carer for a child. Mm. Um, and then there are all these questions about who's going to look after the child in the immediate period while they're in the hospital. But then as the terminal illness progresses, who's going to take care of this child long term? So there's often involvement of ex-partners, new partners of the father or mother who isn't unwell, grandparents, siblings, all kinds of people who, who get involved. And a lot of the work that we've done over the years has been to try and, first of all, work out what the situation is within the family and what the patient wants to happen, both in the immediate period and, and long term, and then to link them in with um, advice and, and assistance to try and make that happen. But this is a visit to the family court, isn't it? This well, involves a family court order look, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, absolutely. Because if the, if the partner insists on having the custody of the child and the mother doesn't want that because, let's say, the, the partner has a drug habit mm-hmm. and wants the grandparents to look after the child, yep. don't you need a family court order? Yeah. I mean, look, Who does that? It's really a combination of um, legal um, areas. So, yes, it's a family court order. It's also a will. Um, it's also potentially a child protection issue, depending on what the situation is with the other parent. Um, so, you know, it, it can be very, very complex. And it may well be that it means that we make a referral to a specialist family law firm who's able to assist with the family court orders. Um, and often, look, we're very, very lucky because of the, the networks that we have as, a, as an organisation that we can call on experts in those areas right. for advice and to help take those pro referrals. Bono. Pro bono. Pro bono. Well. Look, yeah. yeah, a lot of the time it is pro bono. Um, because, I mean, I know it's not a popular view of lawyers, but I think a lot of us are pretty bleeding heart. So, you know, people do want to help. In the beginning. <laughs> Steve? Just on that topic. You know, I, I love hospitals. I eat, breathe and sleep. Then I've been to hospitals every day of my career. <laughs> and I just love the intersection of sort of humanity, science, everything. How are you guys finding coming to a hospital compared to working, you know, in beautiful offices in the city? It's, it's fantastic. It's been magical. I mean, we had no idea, I think, when we started how enriching it would be for us, you know, as professionals, but just as people. I mean, the people we've come across, the support we've got from the teams that we're working in, it's its amazing. Is the reward sometimes, uh, Kate, in seeing that, being able to help these people that were quite desperate before you came in? So the reward is absolutely in helping people who um, have legal issues and have 
quite pleased or grateful to to get that advice. But as Emily said, to come into a hospital, it's been um, absolute eye opener for us to to work in such a large environment as the Alfred. It's like a whole new city, Bill. Um, so we we do um, really uh, are enriched by the experience and also we work inside the social work department. They filter any referrals that we see and so working with them has really been a great experience and certainly uh, made me see social the, the role social workers play play in the sick patient's yeah, life absolutely. What if as it was huge. What, what if it was me? Who can, I can afford a lawyer. In fact, I've got Bill on a retainer right now. Yeah. Um, but if, you, can't, you can't afford me. <laughs> trust we me, I know that. Cut. And you're a sick patient. And I'm a sick patient. Mm-hmm. And there, there, and some, some legal issue comes up and, and it is... I'm just beside myself that I need to get that sorted out. And I, I'm in hospital and, and I'm receiving treatment and I can't leave. Can I still access... I mean, do you... Do you have, I'm not talking about means testing, but do you, is there a way in which you can decide who needs help perhaps more than others, considering that I'm sure you are overwhelmed on those two days. Because you sort of said something gets filtered before it comes to you. What What's the filter? Well, the social worker deter- determines whether the uh, patient has a legal problem that needs to be addressed discussed. Now. Addressed, right. yes. So that's the first step. So that's the first step because that will ensure that, for example, a family member doesn't uh, make some sort of inappropriate suggestion that... A patient needs help, so there. What they would, the work they would traditionally do, would have been to look at that legal problem. Now they identify there's a legal problem that the patient wants to talk about, and they'll make the referral to us. Then Emily can discuss how we. Yeah, and do it, the- I think it's been one of the most interesting things about running this clinic is that um, what it's identified for us is this very high level of unmet need for people who perhaps don't qualify for legal aid because they have assets, they have some sort of financial backing, but they don't have the cash necessarily to pay for private legal advice or they don't have the capacity because they're stuck in a hospital to go into an office in the city or whatever it might be. So certainly when we meet with people, one of the things we will discuss if a referral is required is their capacity to pay and what that might actually look like realistically. Um, And then we would make a supported referral. So it would be about identifying what is the right person or what is the right firm or what is the right community legal centre that we would refer this person to? Do they qualify? How is this actually going to work practically? Emily, is this the only clinic of its kind uh, operating in this way? Um, it's a little bit unique. There's certainly... So I think when we came on the show three or four years ago, um, it was kind of at the dawn of the Health Justice Partnership in Australia and we were talking about this as this new concept and it's something that's really grown a lot over that period of time. So most hospitals now will have some form of Health Justice Partnership and there are lots of them springing up around Australia, which is very, very exciting for us to see. But I think our clinic still remains a bit unique in the sense that it's you know, involving a private law firm um, the number of patients we're seeing is is very, very large, um, I think, compared to some of the other health justice partnerships, which might be focused more on a specific legal issue or a specific patient group, whereas we'll see anybody who has a legal issue that is affecting their health. So it's across the board. It's like a GP practice. So yeah. it's not just doing wills for people with terminal no. illnesses, for example. It's anything. Exactly right. It, so, and, and it really is anything. I mean, the, the things that have come across our door. 
Steve, does that having that sort of option at a place like the Alfred make the Alfred a little bit more attractive to a patient? I know it's, like <laughs> then they're going, in the ambulance yeah. going, make sure you take me to the Alfred. Yeah. I have a legal problem as well. It's in the brochure already ready to go. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not, it's not fair to ask me because little known fact, I worked at the Alfred for 16 years. I love that place. I already think it's a fantastic hospital. I'm not there now. I'm at yeah, Peter yeah, Matt. Yeah. But I think it, I think it any hospital that has this has got it's a big bonus. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, how do we, you know, yeah. how do we get it at my current hospital? Yeah, yeah. Because we're we're thinking about it and we're looking into it at the moment, um, you know. So I'm really interested to know, you know, what do you know? What are all the other hospitals out there? There's dozens, small hospitals, big hospitals, private hospitals, public hospitals. What do we do to try and get something like this in our door? Mm. So can, can I? Just, can can I sorry, Kate. They're not easily set up. It takes a great deal of collaboration and mutual trust. Between the parties, that we as lawyers are going to do the right thing and the hospital are going to support us. You've got to get the right teams in place. Yeah, it it sort of was everything aligned at the one time uh, when when we were approached to set it up. You know, the right corporate council, the Michael Kirby Centre, and uh, my my interest together with Emily's in the intersection between medicine and law. So, like, was there would there have been resistance from the hospital, feeling that they were more vulnerable now to legal issues more so than before? Um, you weren't really able to do work involving suing the Alfred. No, from what not you at all. So the clinic. first thing that was put right. on the table, because there was one year of discussion and collaboration, we didn't just walk in and start the clinic. One year we were in discussion. The first thing that was on the table is. We will not be doing medical negligence cases. (laughs) Right. So although the medical negligence team from Morris Blackburn went into the hospital, the first thing that was agreed that we would not take a medical negligence case because the the Alfred has, first of all, a high degree of um, patient care, but secondly, they have the patient advocate. So if there's any issues with the care they've received, they can go to the in-house patient advocate so that was the first thing that we ironed out, if you'd like to say. Are there any other things that were declared off-limits? Yes, they're, have motor, vehicle, they're motor vehicle accidents because they have, um, <clears throat> again, a patient liaison officer that comes immediately into the hospital, sees the patient and, um, sorry, immediately sees the patient once they come into the hospital to sort out um, their, uh, their entitlements to TAC. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Can you just give us some sort of quick pocket a handkerchief highlights <laughs> of the last four years? I mean, we've talked about the lady who wanted her mm-hmm. children sorted before she died and, you know, died in a, knowing that it was all sorted, which must have been a fantastic thing for you to have done. Yeah. Can you think of any others like that that really spring to mind without sort of betraying confidences? Yeah, of course. I mean, look, some of the interesting stuff that we weren't expecting is um, the human trafficking stuff that we've seen, which was incredibly unexpected um so essentially we've had a few cases again which is a surprise but um often it involves people who are working in a rural setting under um some sort of nefarious kind of arrangement and they get very very badly injured and are airlifted down to melbourne to the alfred and on their arrival it's apparent you know that perhaps immigration is notified that perhaps they're not working under a, a legal arrangement that perhaps they might have you know 
a lot of needs that, that go beyond um, the usual patient who turns up at the hospital. And I tell you what, turning up on a Tuesday and being told, oh, look, we've got, we've got one for you today, it's a real corker. <laughs> and Medicare eligible? Absolutely not. Yeah. So, you know, there's a whole range of issues that we have to untangle you know, before we even see the patient sometimes. I mean, the other thing that happens sometimes is I'll be driving to the hospital on a clinic day and I'll hear something on the news um, that's happened. So some, some incident, some something that's clearly newsworthy and they'll say, and, and the patient's been taken to the Alfred. Yeah. I think, oh, I'll, I'll have a busy one today. Yeah, cancel the coffee plans. And you mentioned you're in conjunction to with the John Kirby Centre. So obviously Michael evaluation. Kirby. Michael, sorry. Yeah. Um, what evaluation are you doing? What's it showing? So um, we had an evaluation of the first six months of operation. So there was a, a study done by the Michael Kirby Centre that was published in the Journal of Law and Medicine a couple of years ago. Um, and that was really looking at, I guess, the, the qualitative impact of this clinic on patients, but also staff at the hospital. And that was a fantastic um, thing for us at the end of the six months. And that really determined whether we were going to continue to do that. And, and I, I think everyone was very clearly on board with us doing that. Um, there's a lot of work in the space around health justice partnerships at the moment um, in academic circles around how do you evaluate a, a project like this? How do you measure the impact? And I think there's still a lot of debate within academic circles about exactly how you do that. And I don't think there's a concrete decision yet. It's been great to have you both in here. Thank you so much for coming back. And, and I guess proving that all that optimism all those years ago was not misplaced, uh, that it has been a game changer in, in the true sense of the word. HELP is a legal clinic, a pro bono legal clinic at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne provided by the law firm Morris Blackburn. And with you tonight has been Principal in Kate Booth and Senior Associate Emily Hart. And thank you to Steve Allen. Thanks for coming in. Nice to see you again. Cheers. And thank you very much, Bill. We'll see you soon.